Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. And it's supported by Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and the subject of this podcast is regulation of the press. The British government is struggling to balance free speech and privacy after an inquiry into the country's aggressive tabloid press recommended tough new laws to correct what it called outrageous behaviour. The British Prime Minister is... There are no state controls here in the UK on who can own or run newspapers, magazines, their online versions, or any kind of news website. These liberties keep the UK's media relatively free from state influence and allow them to be free to be partisan about social and political issues. Unlike broadcasters, the press, in print or online, has no state regulator like Ofcom requiring it to be impartial. There are many implications to this, and the press must balance this freedom to probe, investigate and criticise with a responsibility to report accurately, ethically, fairly and sensitively. As fake news becomes an increasing concern, regulation of the media has never been more relevant. This uh, fake news was indeed fake news. A few years ago, the phrase was hardly known. Now, fake news has its own parliamentary report and its findings are stark. You are fake news. As fake news becomes an increasing concern, regulation of the media has never been more relevant. In some people's eyes, there's little to distinguish fake news from flawed journalism. In a post-truth world, can we depend on mainstream news organisations to give us the fact-based journalism we need? These are big questions, which is why we were delighted to bring to Newcastle and the Civic Journalism Lab Sir Alan Moses, the outgoing chair of IPSO, the Independent Press Standards Organisation. Sir Alan was appointed as a High Court judge in 1996 before joining the Court of Appeal in 2005. Among the trials he has presided over as a judge was the prosecution of MI5 officer David Shaler for passing classified information to the press in breach of the Official Secrets Act. He was also the judge in the high-profile SUA murders case, which led to the imprisonment of Ian Huntley. And in 2014, Sir Alan was the unanimous choice of an independent selection panel tasked with appointing the first chair of IPSO. IPSO started, as some of you may remember, it seems so long ago now, after the scandals of the accusation, for example, of the Bristol schoolmaster for a murder that he never committed because there wasn't any very good news in Bristol over Christmas and the police thought here was an obvious suspect and the press painted him as a murderer, literally changing the colour of his hair. And because of the scandal of phone hacking. But when you contrast what triggered the need for a regulator with what day to day the local and regional press do, you realize the danger, the risk that politicians, those few who are concerned, because the ordinary public aren't, but those few who are concerned and want to stamp out and stop uh, what they don't want to read in the newspapers. 
And the real problem grew out of a disengagement between the public and the community and the news they read. Nobody minds reading their own views and beliefs in a newspaper. What they detest and dislike is reading what somebody else wants to write and disagrees with them. And the secret, I believe, and Hannah and Jamie may disagree with me, but the secret of why the regional and local press are so different from the national press is their ability to engage with their community. They simply daren't be out of step because they depend upon that local community for support. And they, in a far more real way than most of the newspapers nationally, understand that if they don't call out a local authority, if they don't expose local issues of corruption with a small c, in other words, a complete carelessness of the responsibilities of the local community, nobody else will. And the real danger of regulation is stamping it out. And it's never been more important today than to understand what is good about regulation and what is dangerous about regulation. You will read in the manifestos of two out of the three main parties, both the Lib Dem and the Labour, and indeed the Green Party, their pledge to uh, tighten up regulation and make, as they would say, it more effective and more what Leveson, who wrote the report, a colleague of mine, in fact a junior colleague of mine at the time, uh, recommending. Very bad having judges to have anything to do with regulation. Judges don't read newspapers. They have very little sympathy with them. They read a few law reports in the Times. Uh, one or two of us dared walk around with the Guardian because we like to enjoy their piety and their sanctimoniousness and hoped that it would colour our own behaviour. But it's only when I started working as a press regulator, now over five years ago, I really understood the delicate importance of the press and the price that we have to pay for maintaining it. Ipso was founded as really the newspaper's answer to Leveson. It wasn't designed to do exactly what Brian Leveson recommended, and as I've gone on over the years, I'm very glad it wasn't. It was the newspaper's way of regulating themselves, and thus it was that most of the local and regional press uh, joined us and we have over 2,500 print and 1,500 online publications as our members. The way we work is unique. And I use that misused word deliberately. We work through a contract between our members and us. 
a legally binding contract that imposes obligations on our members and confers powers on us. And we can enforce breaches of that contract through the courts. But it was set up and the rules were made by the press themselves. And the rules which they have legally bound themselves now for a second period of five years, because we're now in the second phase, having had five years, is what they bind themselves to do is to obey the editor's code, a set of rules fairly broadly drafted, obligations to be accurate, obligations not to distort, obligations not to intrude on grief or on privacy, not to harass, and a whole raft of clear rules but broadly drafted that they have agreed to obey. But of course they don't. We have had, over my time, something over 47,000 complaints. Numbers don't really help because vast numbers of them don't fall within the remit of the editor's code. But a number of them do. Uh, and uh, the average number of complaints over a year, uh, between eight to 12,000. And of those that are live complaints that are not resolved between the complainant and the particular newspaper complained against, roughly half are dismissed and the other half are either upheld or resolved. But the important point about it is that it has made <clears throat> those newspapers who believed they were free to pander to the laws of the jungle think more carefully about how they avoid breaching the editor's code. And the revolutionary change, and I really believe it is revolutionary, has been the seriousness with which national newspapers have taken their own internal obligations. I don't think the regional press <clears throat> needed to learn that lesson to the same extent. But within each of these organizations, there are now those responsible for compliance with the rules that they have set themselves. And that seems to me, taking that seriously, a really important lesson that they have learned. The real trouble, what the public don't like about the press, is that the press don't express, express their taste and their opinions. The biggest complaints we receive are those where it is said that what is written is biased, prejudiced, or tasteless. And none of those three things are against the rules. And what it is worth thinking about when we come to think about fake news and how we cope with disinformation is to distinguish 
between distortion and inaccuracy and bias and lack of taste. Now, you could have, and certainly those in their manifestos who want to do more about press regulation, something about taste, decency and bias, and you have the example in the broadcasters, in the BBC, who are statutorily bound to be fair, to be balanced. They don't actually think the BBC understand what they, that means. They think it means that you need two people from both sides giving uh, the same amount of time, which, as you know, if you've got rubbish to speak, there's no obligation to give them time to speak it. But they get very fearful. But you can do it, and you can do that by state regulation. You have a statute, a law that says, thou shalt not broadcast unless you comply with these rules of fairness and balance. Now, the last time that was tried with the press was, I think, about 1640. Milton wrote the Areopagitica in, in protest against it, and described it as putting up a gate to stop the crows flying into the field. You could do that, and uh, there are numbers of people who would love to see editors of the national press in prison for breaching it. You could do like those countries where the press has 99% support. Iran, the People's Republic of China. It can all be done. But what you have to think about it is, is it a price worth paying? The problems of fake news are problems that can only be chipped away at by regulators like Ipso enforcing obligations of accuracy and by the public understanding that fake news, the sowing of seeds of doubt, is the way that dictators from time immemorial have ruled. What you need to do first is to make it difficult for the members of the public to know where the truth lies. Goebbels understands that. Trump understands that and the Roman senators understood that. If you don't know where to look for truth, you are lost, and that is how you can be ruled by a dictator. And what I fervently believe that Ipso has achieved has been by setting up a system to which its members belong, where at least you can find those who have signed up legally to a system whereby they strive for truth and lack of distortion. You know when you read a regional newspaper or a local newspaper, there will be an accountable editor, two of whom you've heard from today. And it is at least a start. And we at Ipso, by dealing with the public's complaints as we do daily, whether we uphold them or not, realise that we are actually serving the public by setting up a system 
that avoids the state taking control, but at least provides some mark at which you can look. What I do believe is that the press has been very bad about one thing, and that is, you can mix your musical metaphors if you wish, banging your own drum or blowing your own trumpet or vice versa. But it is a great thing that we have here, that whilst we deplore attacks on those who can't answer, Prince Harry's wife is a good example, and many others who have been attacked by the press, by distortion, and by unfair challenge. You just have to ask what we would lose by some tighter method that stopped it happening at all. Of course the press will say, well, you lose the great investigations and exposures. There aren't that many of them, but there are from time to time those occasions. And I believe the balance that Ipsos strikes daily between freedom and oppression is a balance that needs to be preserved and that's why we believe in what we do. My children and the millennials don't really read newspapers. To them they simply lack the importance that they had in my youth. The people who work for Ipso, I mean, are incredibly young. I mean, we've got about 22, and they're all, I should think, you know, like, and they're all even younger than Hannah, which is saying something. I mean, they're all sort of barely out of bibs and tuckers. And they don't read newspapers. They send stories that are written, probably originally in a newspaper or online, but it all comes in a totally different form and is pinged and then uh, switched over in a way that to a reader of the Daily Telegraph with his arms outstretched at the breakfast table is totally alien. And it is, of course, something that the newspapers have had to uh, grapple with, as, as you've had to. It has to be instant and it is very difficult to know where the story comes from. They know it's been sent by a friend saying, have you read this? But they don't actually know whether it's a serious journalist behind it or whether it is something that has been trumped up. Uh, and it's uh, a real problem. But I suspect that they are becoming more and more astute at needing to know the reliability of that source. I mean, as they read through the content, they will begin to get it. And the yearning and the quest for something serious will, I believe, become stronger and stronger because it is, after all, only they that will understand and suffer from, if they don't understand, the effects of disinformation on the way they live their lives and on the way the country is governed. And so I think that we need to use 
as it were the Ipso examples in a way that can apply to a totally different media form. Because the great challenge is, of course, the challenge of transposing some system of regulation into the new uh, media world of the internet. And all, you see, we've had a white paper, online harms. Politicians love saying, oh, we've got to do something about it. We pledge to uh, control it. And then suddenly the white paper, the green paper, the manifesto, the ink gets smudgy because they don't actually grapple with how to do it. Of course, again, going back to the law, you can do it tomorrow just by using an Iranian system. You just shut it down. But that, I don't believe, would be to the young, to, to the youth, uh, uh, an acceptable solution. And I believe IPSO is important because I think it does provide, if you could somehow provide an incentive so that the, those that disseminate uh, this form of news realize that it is in their own commercial interest uh, to uh, regulate themselves, you will have a beginning, but it's a huge problem. One of the bees in my bonnet, and I, I can let it buzz for a moment. Leveson's, one of his great um, propositions was, you know, every, we have behavior and then it ticks along, and every seven years there's a great outcry and a scandal. And then we have a report, then we have an inquiry, nothing happens, and then press behave, and then seven years later, there's a great outcry, and this must never happen again, he says. And I say bollocks to that. I mean, that's, that's, what, we, that's what happens with our press, and there will be times when they don't behave. And uh, I think that over time, some very interesting aspects. I mean, not that long ago, you would see headlines, sort of six black boys uh, rob, I don't know, rob a, rob a uh, convenience store. And com their ethnic origin completely irrelevant. And actually, I think that has on the whole stopped. They are much more conscious of privacy. They still, of course, infringe it. But they are more conscious. We've done a lot of work about the reporting of suicide because there's undoubtedly ample evidence that if you write too much detail about someone who has taken tragically their own life, you get copycats. And we have done a lot of work with Samaritans, which the newspapers have been interested in, in stopping that happen, and even though the story is there in the court report. Incredible sense of responsibility. Race. Writing about race has been our most difficult issue because if you come from an ethnic group that is written about in generalization in the press, it is incredibly uncomfortable and hurtful but very difficult to know what you do about it. We do have, there is an editor's code rule about discrimination, but it's only if you attack someone personally. If you attack a group, uh, then that is not 
uh, a breach of the code. And that's been a very big issue that has concerned Parliament and has concerned us and remains unresolved. I think the big change is that newspapers take it more seriously. But of course there will still be this line that is so difficult to draw between opinion that they're allowed to express, however outrageous, and distortion or fact. I mean, nobody's resolved the difference between that, and, uh, and, and uh, it is something that we just have to grapple with. One wants a press that push the boundary. I mean, you don't want a defensive press. You don't want a frightened press because then they won't be doing anything worthwhile doing. I mean, you just think of medicine. That not so much in this country, but it's, it's got that way from time to time, and certainly in the United States. Defensive medicine, the fear of any nurse or any doctor doing anything to try, try out in case it goes wrong and that they're million pound, a million dollar suit. And it's, it's a very corrosive effect on medicine. It would have an incredibly corrosive effect on the press if they were constantly wanting to keep well clear of the boundary. Of course, if they're near the boundary, if they're pushing constantly, they will go over it. But at least um, they know that with a body like Ipso, where we take the complaints incredibly... I mean, when I listen to them on the phone, I would never have the patience that the people who work there have. I mean, it's, oh, for God's sake, do shut up. And, uh, but the, I hear them every day. Yes, no, no, we're not the Daily Mail, but, but we, we can arbitrate, as it were, between you and the day. And people crying, people incredibly upset and shouting, being, and quietly learning to have faith in us. And we, we run, um, uh, we have a system where people can write and say, how, how was your experience with those infuriating things every time you get on a bus. But we have that, and we ask them before the result, because after the result, if it's been turned down, they, th they think we're hopeless. But we get an enormously warm uh, reactions on the basis that at least you've tried, you've understood my problem and you've, and you've tried to help. And I think that's a great resource for the press themselves, quite apart from being able to come to us and say, look, we want to do this, uh, how do you think? We get quite a lot, particularly young journalists so ringing us up and, uh, or, or writing to, emailing us and saying, what do you feel about this, which is the way it ought to work, of course. Mm. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>